0: Alrighty, welcome to Penpodcast.com with your co-host Nico Pingen of Pen for Hire NYC. Today we are joined by Michael Atwood. Thank you so much, Michael, for being here today.
1: My pleasure, Nico. Very, very nice to be here.
0: And where are you calling us from today?
1: So I'm in uh, North Attleboro, Massachusetts. Uh, we're about 45 minutes out of Boston and probably about 20 minutes out of Providence, Rhode Island. So we... Uh, share some proximity with those two cities which is pretty cool.
0: Uh oh, perfect, perfect. Yes, I understand as somebody coming out of Worcester, I completely understand. Yeah, Worcester. <laughs> yeah, 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 so we're here in Mass. Um but we are here to discuss, you know, a lot of the stuff that you have primarily, you know, when I was looking at your author bio, I couldn't help but see just that you specialized in English when you were studying as well as you focused on that and uh, you did your undergrad as well as your graduate for professional writing and yeah. even be- became an English teacher for high school.
1: Yeah, so I've, I've been teaching for 24 years, um, started in, uh, I, I went to a Catholic high school in mm-hmm. Attleboro and I taught at Bishop Fian for a couple of years where my daughter actually goes now. Um, and then I went into public education um, and I've been there ever since, so. Um teaching, currently teaching AP literature and AP uh, language and composition. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, no. at Boston College, I studied um, literature. It was, it was a big part of my, my uh, undergrad experience. But I also worked for the Boston Globe as a, as a journalist, a uh, sports writer. So mm-hmm. writing had always been there. Um, of course, as a student, you're doing that academic writing. And then I did sports writing and journalism, too. So I've been writing for a while.
0: Yeah, because when I saw that you were writing for the Boston Globe, Patriot Ledger, North Attleboro Free Press and the Attleboro Chronicle, you have extensive uh, experience regarding writing uh, professionally as well as essentially commercially and since you're a teacher academically as well. And I just want to know, how do you contain all your interests and you say, hey, I'm a writer, but these are the things that I like to write
1: about? That's, uh, um, you know, I think it started with me. Uh, my dad was a big sports fan. So I grew up in a Red Sox, Celtics, um, Patriots type family as you know, yeah, being yeah. from Worcester, I think you probably are exposed to me. So, um, you know, at, at the at the breakfast table is the Boston Globe sports section every morning, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I'd read the Globe um, as much as I could before school and just aspired to be like those great writers for the, for the Boston globe. And I think sports was my first interest just Mm -hmm. learning how to write about it, to describe what happens in the games. Um, You know, I listened to, I think as a kid, I, I came from, I'm 50 years old. So I listened to a lot of radio Mm -hmm. Uh, and I always found that both the spoken and written form describing what was going on in a sports competition. I mean, those, that was my early training in writing and just, Mm -hmm you know, kind of observing and soaking it up, you know, and I even listened to that. I came in last night, we changed our cable package. So I didn't have a TNT to watch the Celtics. Mm-hmm. So I popped on my, <laughs> I popped on the radio and listened to uh, uh, Cedric Mas- Maxwell, one of my favorite players uh, oh. as the color man. And, oh. you know, just the way that sports is described, I think it was very formative. You know, that was my first Um, I played a lot of sports. I love to, to, uh, write about it and and watch it. And, uh, you know, if I had ended up, um, staying on at the globe and, you know, living in a triple decker and somewhere in Boston, you know, and just being a sports writer, I probably would have been pretty happy. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, we're just, we're sports crazy, you know, in New England. So no that is
0: perfectly understandable now my thing is how did you have such a focus on writing that despite being no longer a sports writer uh you still have the passion for writing
1: well i think what it came down to is um always love literature um you know my mom was an english teacher i was just I, I was reading like crazy in high school and then i got to bc and i i really jumped into literature Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I just just had a passion to take that that sports angle and and really, you know, um, just read all the classics and analyze what was going on with plot and character and symbolism and all the rest. So I really um, I just love and I love writing an- a- analysis is a big thing I do with my students, mm-hmm. today. you know, literary analysis. So I loved analyzing. I think I became an English teacher really based on, well, you know, this this symbolizes this or this theme is is going on in this in novel, mm-hmm. you know, it really kind of popped out to me is it, it was a different take. It wasn't just reading a book anymore. It was it was breaking down the parts. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and and like I said, uh, in teaching AP literature, our question three is literary analysis, breaking down a novel or a play. And that's really where it started for me in college mm-hmm. and in high school. I had some great English teachers at uh, Bishop Fien as well. So Yeah, the literary analysis and then you sit down and write about it. You write about a novel or a play or, you know, and I just kind of took that from the sports writing, moved into the academic writing and just kept going. And then I wanted to create my own stories, So that's that's how I get into fiction as well. So
0: so you use the essentially experience that you gained with the reading as well as the writing from the sports side in order to essentially transition over to the fiction because then it allows you to understand what you maybe before didn't have any idea but as you kept doing the sports stuff you could easily start seeing those symbolisms and then once the sports i guess the the sports love quote unquote just faded away and then the literature love just was so headstrong now was it because of the like the words the symbolism um, the ability that you are capable of creating anything with words, or what primarily drew you in, just to the uh, literature.
1: I think I think the characters are interesting. You know those those characters that are complex, and um, you know mm. even even kind of. I know we're going between two kind of different genres here, but uh, John Updike, who was a great fiction writer, novelist, short story writer, he wrote about Ted Williams' last at bat. Mm-hmm. and um it was just a great it was it was an exposé it was an article about you know describing kind of the character of Ted Williams things mm-hmm. that you don't you know we watch like um 3030 30, you know those type you know in 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 depth kind of analysis of athletes mm-hmm. and being an a- athlete um you you find out that a lot of those characters are very complex too to say the mm-hmm. least you know with with social media and the things we find out today so um, yeah. So, I mean, it's, I think the complexity of characters is, is so interesting. It really, um, draws in my own students mm. and it, it wanted me to create my own complex characters. You know, currently it's that morally ambiguous character. We always, you know, I talked to talk to my students about Henrik Ibsen and James Joyce and all the rest. And then I mm-hmm. said, well, what you watch on Netflix, um, with, uh, you know, a breaking bad or a better call Saul or, you know, characters who you think they're doing something good or they're going to be the hero of the story, but maybe they kind of step over the edge and go the wrong direction. And that's really right. interesting, you know, um, literature as in life. So it's, it's, uh, people are complex. Characters are complex and, and complexity in what I read wanted me to create my own characters. And that's really what I worked on with, um, the last collection, um, uh, delirium fades, um, characters who are very, very complex and, and, and definitely morally ambiguous at times.
0: Now, what made you essentially compile a number of stories together? Was it just that you're, you just wanted to give so much that it, it was impossible to just put it all under one story and you just wanted to share as many different pieces that you had readily available.
1: Yeah. So, um, I, I think I mentioned it before in my bio, but I, I did, um, did a lot of track and field along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, in, and, and I always liked to race like the mile where you could, you knew where the finish line was, right? <laughs> you know, and, uh, 5k, 10k, it got a little bit more complicated, but yes. the point, of the, the point of this is like a short story to me. I, I really felt I knew where that ending was and mm-hmm. I knew I could come up with, um, you know 15 pages 20 pages worth of material and and i stayed interested and a good short story is going to have those plot points in the conflict and the complex character and um you cover a lot of ground in 20 pages or 15 mm-hmm. pages and some of the best stories that i've read are quite short you know right um going back to like edgar Allan poe mm-hmm or you know, uh, I do a lot with James Joyce. Um, so short stories to me were very interesting because previously in graduate school I had been working on screenplays,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and those those were ninety pages, hundred and twenty pages. And I would <laughs> I'd say, to, hey, would you like to read my screenplay? People are like, yeah, yeah, I'll get around to it. But when I got out of grad school and I took some of those ideas and put them into short stories, I say, mm-hmm. hey, you want to read a short story of mine? Sure. And the next day I get feedback mm. I Found that I was getting more feedback on my short fiction than mm-hmm. some of the longer fiction and, and the, and the screenplays that I, uh, that I put out. So that's, that's kind of why I want, you know, that's why I've done three collections of short stories because they come fast, you know, ideas. I have an idea. I keep a notebook. I'll write down. Okay. Um, guy gets on a subway in London and finds a briefcase. Mm-hmm. Nobody else is around go. <laughs> And then, you know, what's in that briefcase? Oh, secret documents. Oh, we spin into this whole, you know, it turns into uh, the Born identity over the next 15, 20 pages. So um, I found it I found it tough to really go the distance and and do that kind of marathon novel, um, you know, screenplay type writing. And I really just enjoyed uh, the sprint of a short story because so much happens, like I said, in a short amount of time.
0: Right, and that's perfectly understandable with the, the attention span nowadays as well. You have a, almost a, a much more guaranteed that they even finished the first couple of pages uh, just because the attention span might not even reach there. Um, right. And your stories, like the one sentences describing each story are amazing. Like the one that pulled me was the um, an aging con woman is confronted by her son for her criminal lifestyle. Like that is yeah, so yeah. intriguing. There's so many questions just from that one sentence alone.
1: Yeah. I just, um, you know, and, and again, you read a few things and you say, oh, you know, that's a great story. Maybe I could kind of play with it. And what I've found is that plagiarism, uh, you start to, you start to copy an idea and then it goes a totally different direction.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I think like, we run into stories that, you know, you read a lot about con people. So I put this woman in an apartment and and out in the the Valley in California, you know, the Mm -hmm. San Fernando Valley, and she's pulling all these different schemes and, um, you know, and then suddenly she gets caught, you know, and and of course she got caught once before somebody caught, but she took care of that person. But then her Mm -hmm. son catches her and he's Mm -hmm. involved with the law. And, you know, what is, what is he going to do? Is he going to like, you know, turn his mother in? Um, yeah, so that was that was kind of a fun story to write, you know, and and that came from, again, um, I don't have a lot of time. So maybe, you know, on a, a on a break, you know, at school or so I don't know where I wrote it down, but I just said, you know, ladies in an apartment, she's running. She was calling people on the telephone and trying to get donations and trying to like do these different scams. And, you know, and then it, it developed into a pretty good story. You know, a lot of people actually responded to that, too. So. And now
0: how do you end up determining which of your short stories that you created are going to fit into your collection material?
1: Well, I mean, this one, you know, the, the title of it is Delirium uh, Fades. And that was sort of like, I wanted to have that thread where uh, James Joyce wrote a story called the boarding house. And Mm -hmm. uh, he wrote about this, this woman had a husband and Mrs. Mooney had a husband who was a drunk and he almost killed her with a uh, one night with a um, cleaver, and um, you know she was the daughter of a butcher, and so she ends up divorcing him. And in, in in early 20th century Ireland in Deb- Dublin, she has to open a, a boarding house for men, mm-hmm. and um, so one of her tenants falls in love with or lust with her younger daughter, who's like 18 years old. And, um, and this is a little bit inappropriate. So she, she, uh, you know, basically puts him in a jam because of Catholicism and religion. So he has to Mm -hmm. have the daughter who's not too bright, doesn't have a big future, but she Mm -hmm. corners this guy, but there's a moment in the story where the, the male character, they go into his head and he said, you know, we met, we kissed, we, I carried the candle up at nighttime to her bedroom, this whole thing. And, you know, Uh, but delirium fates. And then he's going to, you know, the the point in the story is where he has to go meet with the mother Mm. and she's going to say, I could mention this to your employer about your inappropriate relationship with my daughter, or you could do the right thing. You know, you don't know if she got pregnant or if there was just an inappropriate relationship, but uh, you know, that whole idea of like love or Mm -hmm. Or delirium in you know people take substances alcohol mm-hmm. drugs uh, people get caught up with these romantic ideas in their heads this, they're 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 caught up in a delirious state mm-hmm. and it eventually fades it eventually reality is going to hit them you know it's that story like well this isn't going to end well for this character and I kind of like that idea you know because in life you know you get in these mindsets sometimes where you think you're just floating. Right. Something happens and you come back down to earth. And so I kind of like that idea and and that's the thread throughout the piece. Each of these characters kind of hits a wall. You know, we start at 5 minutes to midnight. That's where mm-hmm. the story starts and then basically the delirium fades around when the clock strikes 12. You know, there's going to be some conflict or someone catches them or they run into some jam. And so um yeah. So that's that's kind of the the thread behind it that I, I had that idea and I stuck with it the whole time. So um, one of my friends said, you realize that you've used delir- the word delirium in the book like 37 times. <laughs> so that's a repetition, you know, so.
0: Now, in your case, uh, what what would make you decide that a short story either made the cut or mm-hmm. you how to cut some out like are there some stories that you had to cut out and you couldn't include oh. into
1: oh yeah no this is this is a, i have a folder with my b and c stories on my computer uh, oh, nice. these are the a stories that made it and then you know it's like an album you know a band goes mm-hmm, to the mm-hmm. studio and they record you know 37 songs well we can only put 12 on the album right. so you know i kind of treat it that way i've played a little music in my day and and i've um had to make those decisions, you know, musically when Mm -hmm. we recorded. And it was like, okay, well, that one's going to be out. Maybe we'll save it for next time. Or it just doesn't make the cut or it doesn't fit the overall work. So there's a lot, there's a lot of thought that went into it and, and it really, these stories made it because they all kind of fit that thread, um, of the delirium and, you know, it fading at times. So
0: did you use some of the feedback in order to make that determination?
1: Oh, yeah, I have so many, because I'm an English teacher, I just have so many critics, editors,, uh, friends, you know and and uh, you know, the first edition came out, and one of my one of my colleagues came in and she said, "I caught a couple of typos, and she had oh. like <laughs> so we we actually, my editor was really cool. We went back and we did some editing on it. Uh, we put out a second edition because, yeah, I mean it's you, you have ninety thousand words in there. Mm-hmm. Um, there's gonna be a couple of hiccups and so right, we right. make sure we corrected them, but yeah, no, I, I have a lot of people who say, you know what, that story's not working, you know. And uh I have a lot of friends who are on the east coast. I have a friend, Anthony Cipriano, who's on the west coast, who's he sold a couple of movies. He grew up in my hometown. He was um Anthony uh created the Bates Motel, mm-hmm. which, which was the prequel of the psycho series it was on i think um was it on amc i forget what channel it was on but it was norman bates before he became the psycho killer um and so he came up with that idea and he sold that and he's uh sold a a couple of movies so i send him a lot of my stuff and he actually um if you look at the back of my book um i'm not sure if it's on amazon but he he gave me some um some blurbs and things like that so he's doing it at a professional level. I'm still mm-hmm. here in Massachusetts. I'm coming back from the West Coast um, and, you know, doing it on my own back here. So, but I do miss the sunshine in California, so.
0: <laughs> now, one of the things is as a short fiction writer myself, yeah, uh, how do you determine when the story is finished? Do you determine it based off of word count or do you base it off of like, a, a sort of a feeling.
1: I try to, what I've been trying to do um, and what I did with this, this collection in general. Now I try to write down my ending first, Ooh. what's going to happen at the end and kind of go from the back to the front. Mm-hmm. So um, sometimes I'll come up with a scene from the beginning, but I'm going to like, I, I really want to know how this is going to end. Mm-hmm. So I usually have written down the ending somewhere. Okay. And, and if, and if I know where the end is, you know, I was trying to explain it to some, one of my friends, cause I'm around a lot of runners and uh, I just was up at the marathon the other day, but, and I, I did a lot of coaching too. And I'm like, so this is what you want to run at the state meet. This is your time. So we got to back, we got to back it all the way to the first, what's the first workout.
2: You mm. know.
1: <laughs> so I kind of treat the short story collections like that. Like I know where I want to go. Right and I know what that ending is. And then I kind of go back and, and write there. And so, cause I really feel like you need to know where your destination is. Otherwise some of the things that occur earlier in the, um, the short story are not going to make sense, you know? And, and I love it um, when the reader has to piece it all together and they finally get there and maybe they're surprised. I like a lot of, I like a lot of like James Joyce was big on, you know, those open ended endings type of deal. Like you figure out, you come to a conclusion. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, he would, he would write about, um, characters in Dublin and, and you get to the end of the story and, you know, they, they'd have it an ending and it's like the kid figures out something in the story and the reader has to kind of really put it together. You know, mm-hmm. um, it, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's unique. I mean, a lot of people are frustrated. They're like, no, I wanna know exactly what happened or it, this, it seems vague or, you know but I do like those stories where it's, it's a little bit unclear um,
2: and the reader has to come to their own conclusions about things. Thank you for tuning into the Penn Podcast produced by Penn for Hire. Do you struggle with finding affordable and reliable proofreaders? Are you tired of the AI software that doesn't always understand human language? Pen for Hire has an extensive network of professionals we can refer you to to help. Visit our website at www.penforhirenyc.com to get your free consultation today. And now back to the interview.
0: So your favorite way of structuring a story is to essentially reverse engineer it. Because once you already know what the ending is, then now you need to figure out how it starts.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I Stephen King, I listened to his book on writing. I don't know if he put that in my head. I'm a big Dennis Lehane fan. Mm. Uh, you know, he's, he's written some great stuff. He wrote a, a great short story that's called, uh, until Gwen and, um, you know, some of my stuff has that feel. He's really gritty. He wrote for the wire, um, you know, but he he's into a lot of like, you know, I, I don't think he, he didn't really grow up. He grew up in an Irish family in Boston and Dorchester, but he mm-hmm. likes to write about those criminal types, um, you know, and, and kind of a detective type fashion, Shutter Island, Mystic River, those types of films. But he's he's one heck of a short story writer, um, you know, so he's put he's put out at least one collection Coronado um short story. So I really enjoy his style.
0: And now how do you make the determination, like as you mentioned, in your short story collection, there's like 90,000 words. So how do you determine which of those words you're choosing? Um, So per (laughs) short story, I'm sure that you could have written 20 30 40,000 words per sentence that I saw, based off of all your stories. So how do you determine which of the stories or which of the words you're going to use within there without going over what you feel makes that short story as concise as possible.
1: Well, you know, I, I hate to sound like a broken record going back to James Joyce, but um, that Dubliners collection has some really short ones mm-hmm. and then you get to the final one, the dead, mm-hmm. which is a no, almost an, it's a novella. Okay. Mm-hmm. So his last story was a long one. So I think if it has, if I know it can go the distance, that's when I kind of extend it. If I think it's mm. going to be best kind of be, you know, and I think that's good for the reader, too, because readers like quick stories and then the good one, maybe you extend it a little bit longer and stretch it out. Um, If it's got if it's got the feel of a novella or if it's if it's a long story, it really depends. You know, it it has to do with the plot and, um, you know, how many twists and turns you want to take. But I think some of my best stories have been short, really short, like 10 pages, 12 pages and you you know i mean less is more you know sometimes they you know the reader really gets a lot out of a short story um sometimes you know i had my students read the dead and they're like i get kind of bored mr i i really like the uh the shorter ones that were a little bit more packed with um you know they put everything in there in 12 pages so yeah
0: now who helps you condense the stories do you step back after writing it and then, like after a week or two, go back and, and condense it up, or do you have like beta readers or assistants or your editors that help you shorten up the stories if need be?
1: Um, I worked with so I I, I have a friend, um, Julie, who does a lot of uh, reading for me, and then I have a um, an editor in Maryland, uh, Elaine York, who um she did the she did the formatting and the editing and proofreading of the book. So you know that cost a little bit of money out of my pocket to do the editing, but mm-hmm. it was it was well worth it. You know it was it was my most professional put together. The the, the previous ones were edited by, um, you know, uh, the owner of a small press, which she was doing all the work and she did mm-hmm. a great job. Her name's Cynthia Reiser, um, and then getting hiring someone to do it professionally took a lot of um, pressure off me to do all that proofreading. I think I like to create the content and then have someone clean it up.
0: Now, now as a teacher that specializes in AP lit, you would still have somebody else do it for you.
1: Well, I think because I'm busy too. I mean, like, you know, you get your Mm. job and then you you do this on the side. So, um, and I think when you write your own stuff, you want to you get a little bit too close to it sometimes Mm. and you know as a writer it's like uh, i'm just too close to this i need someone else to take a look at it so um and sometimes you miss stuff i mean i missed a lot you know i i I needed to to really clean up the copy because sometimes you're writing so fast because your time's limited Mm. that you may make those errors um the one thing with ap literature and lang is that uh the kids are writing those essays in 45 minutes, you know, mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not sure. I, I didn't take AP in, in high school. We didn't have it at that point, um, <laughs> but uh, you know, I took honors. We, we, I took what they offered, but I mean, those kids have to write 45 minute essays. Yes. So Some of the best samples I show them, they're like, why are all those crossouts on there? Because it's a draft, you all know, right. and that's, so I'm teaching really the process of drafting. Um, so, but yeah, no, I do, I do like to have another set of eyes look at things. I think it's uh, pretty helpful.
0: And and just to make that that comparison more true, <laughs> so essentially those kids, they're pretty much on crunch time with forty five minutes. So they gotta they gotta go in there, and your job is to be the AP coach. And hey, listen, you got forty five minutes to give a A plus uh, drafting. Like you know, you can't be you know. Michael Jordan or Michael Johnson in there. But, you know, do you do your absolute best because, you know, they, you only have 45 minutes. Uh, but essentially, you're creating uh, what they would have the capacity to do. So, except you just have much, much, much more time and many more resources available. Correct.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I'm a Microsoft Word guy. I tried um, a few different programs, um, mm-hmm. you know, to try to clean up the copy. But really, what it, to have a good proofreader go over it. Um, I think you can't beat that. And uh, mm. teach your kids to edit, but at the same time, um, you know, it, really, you want to teach them a control of language so they write it correctly the first time. Mm-hmm. So to work on their syntax, and you know, so I do a lot of strategies with that. As far as um, there's a program called Quill, which mm-hmm. allows you to kind of. Um, Kids go online and do drills and it's grammar, syntax, um, trying to find the right right words to try to work on that copy too. And and I try to give them a lot of feedback too, conferencing and and just looking at their their writing in general. So, but we use rubrics, um, you know, I'm sure that you're young enough to, the rubric system is pretty good too. It gives them a pretty good idea of, of where they're at. So I was pretty happy. We did a mock exam. Mm-hmm. And my AP Literature students uh, in January did very well. They, their their number one essay was the poetry one. Mm-hmm. Question one's on poetry, so they had to read a poem, break it down, and write an analysis. And we did, you know, it's, it's a six point um, rubric, and a lot of kids were getting fours, fives, and sixes on that one. Um, they also have, which is something interesting in AP Literature too. I mm-hmm. teach. Uh, there's a short prose fiction section. Question two and um so that'll be an excerpt from a short story or a novel and the kids have to analyze what's going on with it so we do a lot of short work too so i'm, I'm coming mm-hmm. off with my short stories and uh bringing that in the classroom kind of like it, it all works together really so
0: <laughs> now how do you how do you create your characters since you mentioned that you start at the end do you already know what your characters are going to go through do you have an inspiration for the characters or once you have the ending in mind, then you start to develop who's partaking in there and where they're coming from.
2: Yeah, I
1: usually like to start with um ordinary people who um, maybe get into a situation which creates a lot of havoc in their lives. Mm. So as you can see from the back, I talk about the housewife who she was an I- I- IRA um, operative <laughs> who came to America. It's like, well, she was just a housewife a minute ago. And then suddenly someone found out who she used to be, Mm. you know, um, at the bank president who changed his identity during the war. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, someone shows up and knows all about it Mm. and wants to destroy the life that he currently has. Um, you know, the, uh, the one about, um, the man who picked up the suitcase in the, in the, in the subway in London. So I was in London one time. I, I was on the subway (laughs) and I had done a 10 K race. I went out and ran a race and and I got on the subway and um, this guy gets on and he's, he's Egyptian and he's a very fit runner. And I strike up a conversation with him. And he said, Oh yeah, I came in, uh, I came in third in that race with 10,000 people, which I, I did not come in third. (laughs) And so so, (laughs) so we're riding the subway back together. And, you know, so I I really had a good conversation with him. And, um, so he had come to London and he was a waiter and he was telling me he was like the number one marathoner in Egypt, but he was, he had this whole story. And so Mm -hmm. I left him and got off the train and that was like, you know, that was back in 2011, 2012. And so I started thinking about that. I was like, what if he got on that train one night after a shift? And there was a there was a briefcase there. Hmm. And what if he picked up the briefcase, and there was some sort of confidential document, or, you know, someone planted it there, someone was trying to send a message what you know, and so I went from there. And then, you know, I said, Okay, this is this is what is going to happen at the end, I won't reveal the ending. But you know, I kind of, I went back to like situations like that. You run into people, you meet people, you see things. And then, you know, I just have kind of a wild imagination, you know, and uh, it's what happens when you grow up in New England, you know, it's it's not not that exciting around here. So you got to create all these stories in your head, right?
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's so true. I was going to ask you where, I was going to ask you where did you get these inspirations, but this one sounded like it's based off of a semi true ish story.
1: Yeah. I mean, and the other book that um, so this is this was my first one called History of Santa Monica. So it's got a kind of a madman 1960s silhouette going there. And so these stories were primarily set in Santa Monica, Los Angeles. Um, And I lived out there. Like I told Mm -hmm. you, I went to graduate school and you would meet people. My friend owned an Irish pub guy who went to high school with me. I moved out there. He said, hey, I bought a pub. So I would hang out there, and I would meet people, and you know they were trying to make it in the entertainment industry, and yeah. suddenly they showed up in a short story. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's
2: like, it's like, <laughs> that's the way it works. are
1: all pending from the people who.
2: <laughs> uh, <laughs> so. oh, but uh, yeah, good.
1: it's 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 one of those things where I'm just I'm just always observing people. I mean, like going to LA was a big, sorry, my chair is squeaking. That's what the noise is. Um, it's a great people watching place, you know, and, mm. and I was over at USC studying. So I saw a lot of, um, you know, the very rich and affluent side. And then I'd go back to Santa Monica and Santa Monica was, you know, this was 2002, 2003. So it wasn't the Santa Monica of today. Right. Um, I lived next to a bar. And across the street from a Mexican restaurant, people were smoking on my uh, doorstep. Homeless people were all around. It was it was it was kind of a rough you know environment. And then my son William was born out there, and we got to get the hell out of here. We got to go back to Massachusetts. So we were living in like a rent control apartment, mm-hmm. and I, you know my wife was teaching. I was going to grad school, and then I was teaching. and My son was born, and you know so a lot of the stories in history of Santa Monica were based on that, you know, at the same time, I'm writing screenplays, I'm like, maybe something's gonna hit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So my buddy was doing the um, go, my buddy, Jason was doing the um, comedy circuit. So I was going out to uh, watch shows and going into Hollywood and going down to the Sunset Strip. And, you know, just seeing that lifestyle down there. And then you come back and you start thinking about these different tales that you can write about. So yeah, LA was definitely good for stimulating creativity. There was a lot going on out there. So, and we're going back in late June to visit family have family out there. So we'll, um, you know, I'll probably head up to LA for a couple of days and and see some friends. So it's uh, it's an interesting place.
0: Now, do you use that as a potential opportunity to continue some of those stories? Yeah. once you finish, it's over.
1: No, no, no. I definitely, you know, I did did two versions of uh, the Santa Monica. Mm -hmm. Uh, I did a a second version, which were some of the B stories. Um, And, you know, I... I, Might you work
0: on the B stories to upgrade them to A stories for the sequels?
1: Oh, yeah. No, they were B stories at this time when we went to publication. And, um, you know, I, I had published a lot of these stories... Mm -hmm. in um, journals, I was, I was getting them published in online journals or print journals. So I think I had four published before the actual collection came out. And that was how I kind of got the deal with the small press, it was aqueous press, which is um, a small press down in Florida. And I said, Hey, I'm already published. Um, Would you like to do the full collection and uh, Cynthia Reeser, who was the publisher, Said, yeah, no, let's do it. So um, it worked out great. Yeah. So developing those stories, you constantly trying to rework them. And, you know, if it's a B story, you might go back and say, hey, maybe I better revisit that
2: mm. and
1: try to bring it up to A quality. So so that's that's how I work. I mean, it's just constantly reworking ideas and stuff that I've thrown away. I picked up again and turned it into something. So um it just maybe, maybe it wasn't right at the time, you know? So, uh, and then you go back to it and say, I, I feel like I've heard that story with musicians, you know, mm-hmm. they throw away a song right? Or, or they give it to someone else and it becomes a big hit. You know, <laughs> how many mm-hmm. times I, mean, I don't want to record that one, but I'm going to give it to, you know, another artist and then they make it a huge hit and that, and that happens quite often. So maybe the timing wasn't right. and Maybe I needed to look at it differently mm-hmm. and, and, you know, or someone said, Hey, I, I just read this you didn't put that in the book why didn't you do something with that you know so
0: Hmm, that's interesting that your b level might be you know a different version of yourself's a level uh right. which is actually pretty interesting because you might have been you know your judgment might have been clouded through the years through the experiences and now that you're going to revisit and physically visit as well and enjoy yourself you might look back at those stories and actually see the diamond and the rust that you left years ago
1: yeah. That's so, right. I mean, um, there was one story that I had worked on for, so I had to write a thesis for my, mm-hmm. uh, to graduate from USC. I got a master's of arts and so had a lot of great teachers. Uh, this guy, Andy Meyer was a producer for the breakfast club. Mm. Uh, you, you know, that movie, the breakfast club. Um, and so, He, I I had this idea of. um, I wrote a screenplay about a psychologist Mm -hmm. who is gets in some trouble, and at the same time, when he's going through some legal trouble, he starts to see this vision of um, John Lennon. Mm -hmm. And he's kind of discredited as a psychologist, he's a teen uh, child psychologist, and you know, all these accusations come up. And he starts having, he was into the Beatles as a kid and, and, and he he believes this apparition of John Lennon's real. And then something happens and he stumbles into a new patient who is this teenage musical prodigy and is kind of like a young John Lennon. So that that was the premise of my screenplay. And, um, you know, I wrote it and no one read it. It it worked as a thesis statement. I mean, my, my advisor read it Mm -hmm. and, able to graduate but then that became a short story in the first collection called tracks and um you know people kind of like that it was like Mm -hmm. uh i don't know did you ever see the movie field of dreams where um kevin costner um is out in iowa and he builds a baseball field and uh suddenly all these joe jackson and all these famous dead ball players arrive at the field it's sort of like the ghost arriving you know like a hamlet type of thing yeah yeah (laughs) and uh you know, so those stories, those were interesting to me. And, and uh, like I said, it it was a screenplay first and then it became Mm -hmm. a story because
2: people would read the short story. They had time for that. So thank you for listening to the penpodcast.com, produced by pen for hire. Have you always wanted to write a book, but just can't seem to find the time. Do you have an amazing story to tell, but don't enjoy writing? At Pen for Hire, we specialize in extracting the words from your head and turning them into compelling written content. And we do it in your voice. So not only does the story get told, but no one will ever know you didn't do the writing. Visit our website at www.penforhirenyc.com to find out more today. And now back to the interview.
0: And now if you had a chance to revisit yourself, let's say you had like you know, one of those crazy superpowers and they said you only had one time to visit yourself at, at 18 years old. You have 30 seconds to give yourself some piece of advice. What would you tell a younger version of yourself?
1: I would have probably gone out to Los Angeles a lot earlier. You know, I think um, my friends like I keep mentioning Anthony Cipriano, you can look him mm-hmm. up on IMDB. He went out in the 20s Uh, And he uh, started work. I think he worked for Rosie O'Donnell's um, as like a a writer assistant, but he, he got into Hollywood very early Mm -hmm. and then in his thirties, he started selling screenplays.
2: And I feel like
1: I I didn't, I wish I had um, headed that direction when I was like 18, 19 or, you know, maybe after college Mm -hmm. um, to, to take a shot out there because I think, you know, I'm 50 now. I'm like, mm-hmm. you know, I'm really, I'm really trying to put the pedal to the metal here. I don't, <laughs> I think my fifties is, this is my last shot, but, yeah. uh, yeah. but it's, it's one of those things where I think the younger you start, you know, and, um, uh, you look at the Matt Damon's and Ben Affleck's, they kind of gave it up and they, you know, I was just listening to a podcast about how like Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, they were sleeping on couches and writing Good mm-hmm. Hunting and you know they wrote that screenplay it's it's right incredible. And, and they um, treated it you know um, people wanted to buy it and do do it with different actors and they wanted to act in it so I think when you're 20, 22 24 you know to really go out there and really take a shot at it that would be that would be the advice that I give myself so
0: and now currently since you've been going through a lot as a writer who yeah. in your experience, in your years are your favorite top three authors okay not including yourself of course
1: yeah i'm a big fan of dennis lahane who i mentioned earlier Mm -hmm. um i i always go back to to henrik ibsen who wrote a play called the doll's house he a doll's house i've used that in the classroom and I'm still getting the same reaction out of kids in, in 2022, as I did you know, when I first started using it. It's just got such a great, great plot to it and mm-hmm. the conflict and the complex characters. I just love Ibsen. And then my third would probably be James Joyce. So I'm a little bit on the older side with writers um, in the same breath. So that's three. Robert Parker would be someone I'd kind of put with Lehane because he wrote about Boston and detect- he did mm-hmm. the Spencer series, mm-hmm. um, which I know they made Mark Wahlberg made a film, but the, the actual, the actual novels were, they're great. I mean, he, he was a Dashiell Hammett uh, fan. He was, he was into de- to uh, detective fiction and uh, I thought he was fantastic. So
0: now as a, person who loves the way that words are on paper and electronically what is a tip of advice that you see recurringly a mistake in your students that you would just like to enlighten all of us because i know there's got to be at least something that you're like man nine out of ten kids are always doing this one mistake and i wish they would just
1: not i think sentence variety you know the long sentences are for description Mm. and short sentences are for action and the more that you vary that up with your writing, I think it, it becomes more fluid. Um, you know, my students struggle with uh, compound sentences, mm-hmm. um, you know, prepositional phrases. I mean, just phrasing things and furthermore. And it's important to note, you know, like they just phrases and 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 transitions and, and things like that. I think that's that's uh, something I try to put in my writing. But I mean, it's it's it. it when I show the samples, the models, they, mm-hmm. they really, it really pops out that these kids who are getting the high scores on the AP exams, uh, know they have a command of language, mm-hmm. a sophistication of language. That's actually mm-hmm. that's actually one point. You get one point for a thesis statement, right? Four points for evidence and reasoning, mm-hmm. and one point for sophistication. So there's a six point rubric, and and um, you know I, I'm talking academically now, but I really. In my own writing, I'd like to have have that flow, um, you know, and, and, and definitely have that sophistication and command of language, too.
0: And now I like I can't help it, but what you said earlier about how the fact that you made a phone call or you communicated with somebody that already saw all of your previous work and you asked them in order to publish your collection. And is that how you created that first um, collection of your work?
1: Uh, The first one, yeah. So the first one was um, with history, Santa Monica. Um, This is the original cover. I think I changed it on Amazon. So it would be a little bit different, but I really like this Mm -hmm. cover. My friend designed it, Lisa Graves, but um, yeah, no, I I just queried people, you know, I I was quick and, and I probably put out a hundred queries and uh, one person, you know, it's, only takes one. <laughs> it's true. It really only takes, takes one. one. In love and publishing, No, excuse me. Uh, <laughs> it's it's. Uh, I just caught this publisher at the right time, and she was interested. And you know, I I'm indebted because it was it happened fast too. It was mm-hmm.
2: like,
1: contacted her in January, and then the book was out in May. So, but I had written it all. I had edited. I was in a really good position to publish so i saved her uh, her a lot of work but um yeah so it's it's pretty cool how it works
0: wait so when you already were in contacts with her the book was already done
1: yeah i i had written it and i was just trying to sell it you know Ah. and and i think that's important too when you're when you're a writer you want to make sure that you have a finished work where Mm -hmm. you know like um with with uh, someone like Anthony Cipriano, I send him a fin- I sent him a couple of screenplays lately. I wrote a couple of screenplays, mm-hmm. and um, I want you know before I was sending him stuff half finished, but I, you know now I have a little bit more uh, grasp on things. I, I, I want to want him to see the whole work. You know what I mean? Right. Not, just something that's not polished or half done. So um, he's been a great mentor. You know he's actually younger than me, but he's mentored me. <laughs>
0: No, that's, that's, that's actually pretty cool because that's allowing you as the literal subject matter expert in regards to English and literature and professional writing to still see and understand that there's others that either they just have a talent or an affinity for something. And plus, if they give you their point of view, it might unlock a a crazy amount of understanding in your brain because you're seeing it in a completely different way.
1: Yeah. And that, I mean, out in LA, um, I taught at a school where there were a lot of people in the business and, um, George went, uh, he was, he played Norm on Cheers. You know who that is? He's, uh, kind of the big guy. When he walked in the bar, they said Norm, um, Cheers was a big Boston series in the, in the eighties. And, uh, I taught his son. And so he was one of the first people who, um, Mentored me, read my work. I went over his house. I, I wrote a lot of college recommendations for his son Joe, who uh, who is a great kid. And um, you know, uh, we both had an affinity for music, and, and mm-hmm. his son played. But anyways, he he actually called me. He was I gave him my screenplay, thinking, yeah, he's not going to do anything with it. And he read it on the plane when he flew to Chicago and called me. He's like, Hey, Hey Mike, I'm in Chicago. I'm walking down the street. I just finished your screenplay on the plane. And I think it's great. And he had all these notes. They get a lot of notes from people, mm-hmm. Hollywood's, you know? And so he gave me notes. And then um, another parent was George Zaloom, who did a movie called Encino man,
2: mm.
1: <laughs> which was, was actually kind of a, a, a comedy hit in the, uh, in the eighties. Or actually, I think that might be in the 90s, but yeah, you know, Encino Man, yeah. So he was another parent, and I brought, I said, Hey, would you like to read a screenplay? Sure. And he called me up. He had all these notes for me. He had me on the phone. He's like, Get a pen. And so <laughs> I, start, I just, you know, and then he's like, I'm going to send you a copy. So these people did this. There was no charge.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, they were just, you know, I was at the time in my 30s, and they were just trying to like help. You know, and and it's kind of cool to get mentors or people who are like, I think I think teaching people and helping people, and I try to do that myself, not only with my job, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, there may not be a paycheck at the end of it, but it's it's something that you should do as a person, and I think it, it makes you feel better, and 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 you're helping someone too. So, and they did that for me. So, and I think I guess the the moral of the story here is. Although the screenplays didn't you know, succeed, uh, mm-hmm. the fiction came later, and that's mm-hmm. where I found my success. And they've all, they've all been supportive, giving me blurbs, um, you know. And the other teacher I'd like to mention, uh, Susan Campo. She was a USC uh, professor, but she was a published short story writer, one of my first professors at USC, was very helpful as far as um, getting me into that short fiction, short story genre. So I had some really good examples, really good mentors out there.
0: Yeah, I was just about to ask you how vital, you know, is having a mentor, or somebody uh, that either came before you or is currently better than you at what you're trying to accomplish.
1: Absolutely, hang out. You know, if you want to be skinny, do what skinny people do. If you want to be a good writer, if you want to be a good writer, do what the great writers are doing, and and or you know, or the ho- people who knew Hollywood. These guys, you know, one was an actor, one was a producer, one was a writer. They all had they all knew, you know, but they all know each other out there and they're all, Mm -hmm. you know, and you might be an actor, but you might be writing stuff. You might say, well, acting's not going to last forever, so I better get writing or producing. You know, you see these people who um, like a Ben Affleck Mm -hmm. or, you know, he's he's produces all his movies. He directs them. He does. He acts in them. So, I mean, I think Hollywood is, is survival um, and a lot of these people do that. So I've never been in it, but I was around it. I observed it and, and I like to write about it. So it's, it's really interesting.
0: Oh, that's actually such an amazing way to, to just tie it all together. Be capable, <laughs> be literally prepared, be able to shift from doing one thing into another uh, yeah. because Ben Affleck, he's capable of doing it all as well as just doing one part of it. Um, so it's actually pretty, pretty cool from being a screenwriter to being a sports journalist to being a, a short, uh, I don't even know what's the proper term because it's not sports just a short air, yeah. story, but it's a it's a collection. So a, a memoir author, because you write a collection mm-hmm. of short stories and publish them all together. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. I, I do have a question. Would you ever individually publish them? Or are you, are you just like the, the the collection way and the delirium phase is just much, much better to keep it all together?
1: Yeah, I think at this point, I wouldn't go back and, you know, if someone had an interest to put it in a magazine or something like that. But a lot of um, journals have, um, you know, well, if you've published it outside of the journal, we don't want it.
2: Mm, you know, want right. to be the
1: first one. And some journals I found like they would contact you and say, we want to publish your story, then you wouldn't hear anything for six months. No. Oh, so you go, well, what am I going to do? Right. And then, you know, um, I think at one time I published it with another journal. And then the, the first one came back. And I said, I've already published it. Hey, we wanted that one. You know, it's like, <laughs> first, come first be hanging for six months, you know, right, like, right, right, right. Yeah. So and I guess I'm enough, enough of an amateur writer that, you know, no one, there, was, there was no uh, repercussions. You know, there was no consequences, but, you know, but they're, they're very, they want original contact, they, you know, content. They don't want it to be, you know, in six different publications because you went around and sold your story, you know, and sometimes you get paid on these too. I get, you get paid little, you know, 30 bucks here, 40 bucks here
2: mm-hmm. for
1: publishing a story, but that's not why I'm doing it. I have a day job. And, uh, you know, if something strikes a chord with somebody and, and they, you know, like I said, I wrote two screenplays and I took a couple of the stories from the, from the uh, collection and mm-hmm. extended them into to screenplays. And um, they came out okay. They came out okay. Uh, there was a father and son, the, the one I think I described it on the back as, um, let's see. I like my descriptions here. I did a good job, but I just forgot what I wrote. Um, the father and son team, who uh, basically they become uh, diamond thieves. So um, that was a, that was something that I turned into a screenplay, mm. and uh, it's called Diamond Bar. And uh, you know, they they go out in the Atlantic to find a ship that sank at sea with all these diamonds on it. And the father found out about it in prison. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, um, the FBI comes looking for him. And of course there's a drug cartel guy in there who comes looking for the diamonds. Everyone's looking for the diamonds. So, (laughs) yeah. So that, it was a fun story to write. Um, You know, and I, I, like I said, I sent it out to Mr. Cipriano and he gave Mm me some notes and you know it's really kind of just working on the first 20 pages his advice was kind of want you to go back to the first 20 pages try to you know set up the story in a way i was using a voiceover too i was using that character who you know uh, the father the father's walking out of walpole prison mm-hmm. and he's sitting in the car and he and you hear the voice my father always had an affinity for diamonds mm-hmm. you know he starts narrating the story and uh anthony was Saying, yeah, I don't know if that's going to work for that. Maybe you take off the voiceover and you just let the characters establish themselves with their behavior and dialogue. You know, because mm. character really is behavior and a screenplay is uh, a series of images on the screen. Right. Right. Um, you tell a story through a series of images. And I think that the problem a lot of screenwriters, they, they want to get they want to write a play. Mm hmm. Hey, I got some cute dialogue. I want to get in there, but they don't, they don't really focus on what is the viewer seeing on the screen and how can you tell the story through a series of images? And I think if you think back to some of your favorite films, there was a lot of imagery on the screen, um, to start off and you you were watching characters behave Mm -hmm. and you were seeing the complexity behind the characters before they even spoke sometimes. I think that's a really good film. Um, when you can, when you, because you want to, we, we all want to, like I I talked about going to LA and observing people. That's Mm -hmm. so interesting. And when you sit down to watch a film in a theater or in front of your TV, you want to observe. Right. And, and and I think dialogue is really important, but I think um, even writing short stories, describing, you know, description of scenes and things like that can really set up a story nicely.
0: No. For those that are actually interested in your books, hard book, ebook, as well as your screenplay, uh, do you have them all in separate locations or where can people reach um, out to get your material?
1: So, this time around, so um, first of all, the this book right here is available uh, at one bookstore and it's at uh, Jeff Kinney's bookstore in Plainville, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. It's called an un, an unlikely story. Jeff Kinney is the guy who did the diary of the, uh, of the wimpy kid.
0: Oh, and that's actually pretty cool.
1: Yeah. So he he built a bookstore. So it, was, it used to be a, um, a country store. And when he moved mm-hmm. to Plainville, you know, he sold a lot of movies. He's done very well in life. And so he loved this old country. I think he brought his kids to this country store and it was really, it was falling apart. And so eventually the town said, we're going to, we're going to tear it down so he decided to buy it and he was going to restore it but it was so um structurally compromised that he ended up tearing it down and he built this like colonial looking brick bookstore which is one of the greatest structures that (laughs) i've seen in any small town it it looks like it it belongs in like old boston or williamsburg or Mm -hmm. and it's an amazing bookstore and so um He used to accept local authors, but now he accepts all. He he doesn't we had there was a section like, you know, locally published people. But Mm -hmm. now he you know, I'm in the mystery um, suspense section. So he puts you in the mainstream. So you have to like, you know, basically um, bring the book in, sign a contract, the whole deal. And so it's it's currently being sold there. Um, the, The other books are sold on Amazon. And uh, you can look me up on Michael J. Atwood. I have an author page. And uh, yeah, that's that's pretty much where I'm selling them now.
0: And do you do you have access to your screenplays or somebody that was interested in one of the potential, you know, many, many different uh, ideas that you gave? How would somebody get a hold of you?
1: Um, So, I mean, I could put it in the chat, but, uh, you know, just my general email um, and I'd be glad to share. I don't know if you're interested in, too, but I'd love to to share. and yeah so i mean i can put my email in the chat if if that's good with you
0: no okay perfect so that we will definitely include that in the description for the podcast episode so once the podcast does go live on apple spotify everywhere else um we'll include that as well and we can also have that updated on youtube and facebook live afterwards with that so that way just in case you never know you know you have a lot of great ideas that you're you mentioned earlier so somebody Wants to reach out to you in order to get you uh, and then to collaborate on some sort of a script screenplay uh, or at least, you know, give you some feedback or ask you for some feedback as you've done, you know, been doing this for many, many years. I would, you know, wouldn't be too surprised if that does occur. So I uh, will add that to, uh, you know, the description other than that. Thank you so much, Michael, for you know, you. giving us so many nuggets of information As well as giving us a lot of the behind the scenes or the backgrounds of your stories how you created them as well as you know pretty much your style of teaching so you know kudos for you again check out delirious fades on or excuse me delirium fades on amazon as well as we're going to include his email if you want to discuss anything regarding his script writing or screenplay Other than that, this has been another amazing episode of the Penn Podcast. I've been your co-host, Nico Pingan. Michael, thank you so much. Take care and have a great rest of your night then.
1: Hey, thanks a lot, Nico. It's been great talking with you, man.